Hello, Duncan Green here with your weekly roundup of posts on the From Poverty to Power blog. On a rainy Friday afternoon, I'm recording this, the 40th anniversary of the Sandinista Revolution, uh, which was a big formative influence on me in my 20s and 30s, but sadly has gone horribly off the rails since. But anyway, uh, it's the 19th of July, which always makes me think back to uh, a revolutionary fervor of other days. Right, back to the blog. Um, Monday was a links I liked roundup. Uh, there appear to be an increasing number of pieces on the scandal of UK visa refusals, especially for African applicants, which is messing up uh, the research um, uh, community a lot. African researchers trying to come over here to discuss things like Ebola just get refused visas, and it's completely ridiculous. It's doing the UK's reputation even more harm than all the other things, uh, uh, in addition to all the other things, and it's completely inexplicable. It makes no sense. So I think this is one where we might actually anticipate a win, because I can't see who is really benefiting from um, uh, destroying the UK's academic reputation, apart from anything else. The links I liked also had uh, horrendous, and I, I hesitate to use the phrase killer fact because it's about deaths. If you had a minute silence for every construction worker who's died in preparing Qatar for the Football World Cup in 2022, um, the first 44 matches would be played in silence. That's a, a, a stunning kind of thing to think about, just how many people have died in those poorly uh, managed construction sites. And will we hear about them when we get to the World Cup? Um, I'm not at all sure. Then the final one I liked on, on links I liked, um, email like a boss. It's actually quite a, a subtle table of how you can radiate authority in the way you respond to emails. So, you know, a normal person would say, look, really sorry for the delay. Um, whereas a boss would say, thank you for your patience. And there's a whole bunch of sort of um, phrases. Somebody actually uh, tweeted, I think, saying, I'm very junior. Do you think I should start using these? And I'm not at all sure. You might come over as a bit of an idiot if you do. But um, interesting just that the tone that an email can radiate just by choosing the right phrase. On Tuesday, a colleague of mine from Oxfam Intermon, Oxfam in Spain, Jaime Atienza, wrote a piece about the looming debt crisis in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa. We've been worrying about this for a while now, and it's getting worse. All the, all the predictions are that there's going to be some kind of crunch between 2020 and 2022, which could become very much like the first debt crisis of the 90s and 2000s, which led to the HIPIC initiative, a massive global round of debt relief. And then the debt starts picking up again after the debt relief. It's slightly different debt this time, much more uh, in the form of um, bonds and loans from China, rather than big multilateral loans from IMF and World Bank and so on. Um, <clears throat> The point Jaime's making is that um, you can't just cancel and then repeat and sort of every 20 years have another debt crisis. Uh, you need to think about longer term solutions, things like progressive tax systems, which actually mean that governments are generating um, revenue inside the country rather than borrowing money. And orderly workout arrangements. You know, if, if, if companies get into debt in many countries, there is a perfectly orderly 
bankruptcy procedure designed to help them get through that bankruptcy and back up and uh, running and so overall the economy benefits. There's nothing like that for national governments. Every time there's a debt crisis with a, with a national government, there, it has to be kind of improvised and is incredibly messy and far more damaging than it has to be. So there's been quite a movement for setting up rules for orderly workouts of debt. Um, and uh, Jaime says that this has got to be another part of that uh, puzzle to stop this happening every 20 years. Then on Wednesday, I wrote about a really interesting conversation I had in Barcelona um, last week. Barcelona um, and, and Catalonia have their own aid budgets. Barcelona has a 0.7% target of its revenue, not of gross national income, which it says it will spend on international cooperation, which is just amazing. It's sort of it prides itself from being a leader in the kind of rising world of city networks, and it has been for several decades. Um, and we had a conversation with the aid officials from Barcelona and from Catalonia, the, 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 the region, and I was laying out my normal stuff about, you know, how if you think about systems, you have to change the way you think about aid. And they said, yeah, that's all very interesting, but actually it's completely useless because um, we know that our political masters need to have control over the aid budget. They need to be able to say that nothing will be lost to corruption. They need to have command and control. And so there's no point in you saying you've got to let go of all that to increase the efficiency or the impact of aid. It's not going to happen. So then we got on to a much more limited conversation, but a very interesting one about, okay, so within command and control, if you take that as given, can you still do anything which is more appropriate for thinking in systems and thinking about ambiguity and uncertainty and complexity. And some of the things I think fit within that, um, that rubric, one is uh, direct transfers of cash to individuals. That can either be as cash transfers or as scholarships or as leadership stipends. But if you're funding individuals, you can be fairly sure that the money won't be stolen, uh, certainly not in large quantities. And, um, and it's compatible with uncertainty and not knowing quite where things are going to end up. You can actually stick with the people you know. I mean, that's how a lot of investors and businesses navigate the uncertainty of markets. You know, you, you've got a reputation, uh, people trust you, and you, you do everything to avoid losing that reputation. The problem with that is it's a very conservative starting point. It means you end up always funding the same people and not funding new, new players and um, th there's an issue there. Um, you can, uh, one of the things which is in theory compatible with systems is payment by results, uh, which I've written about quite a lot on the blog, which is this idea that you only get paid by the donor when you get the results, when you've averted so many maternal deaths or when you've educated so many kids or built so many roads and bridges. So therefore, if the money's stolen, you don't get paid. And that's, that, that gives comfort to the donor. Um, and, it, and it doesn't prescribe how you go about educating, avoiding maternal deaths or building a road or bridge. So in that sense, it is compatible with systems thinking, but that's not how it's worked out in practice. Like many of these ideas which look great on paper, in practice, the donors have used it to reduce risk, but not to reduce their level of micromanagement. So there's a big debate between theory and practice on this whole payment by results question. And then the final one, which I think is interesting, is well, let's just take aid off the table. Let's take money off the table. What other kinds of aid would work? Well, I think exchange of skills, technical assistance, exchanges between countries in similar situations, all those kind of things I think are useful and probably slightly bypassed 
because they don't require a lot of money and aid is all about spending money. So those are some of the things I think might be compatible with a command and control um, uh, limitation on aid. And then a sort of slightly related post the next day was um, how to rebuild trust. I was having a conversation uh, with a colleague about who's got a project to try and rebuild trust in politicians in the UK because the level of public hostility towards politicians of all kinds is at unprecedented levels. People no longer defer to their leaders, which in some ways is a good thing, but in some ways it absolutely damages representative democracy, certainly because people just don't trust their leaders to do anything useful. Um, And I asked this guy, can you give me any examples in the past where people have rebuilt trust? And this is a conversation I often have with people. When people come up with a, a problem or a solution or an idea or a campaign, I say, well, okay, Let's look at history. Where has something like this happened before? If it has happened, then we can learn from it. If it's never happened, then that may question whether this is really a good solution. So we got into a conversation about that. I I put it out on Twitter and got some good suggestions from people. And then I put it up on a blog. Um, Some of the things I think rebuild trust are things like um, new actors, big new political movements who come in uh, as as a new broom, like the Evo Morales government in 2006 which I uh, went back to see in a bit of a state of disillusion in terms of its levels of trust with the public uh, when I went back last month. But for a while there, it had a clean reputation and a new movement can do that. And the other one is, you know, certain people within society seem to be able to maintain trust. Um, Religious leaders in many cases. Um, David Attenborough, you know, a secular saint who wowed Glastonbury and everybody loves David Attenborough. So you've got these, these... potential intermediaries who have trust, can they sort of confer it by saying, we think you should trust this particular idea or this particular political leader, and so you can have sort of trust brokers working, maybe, something like that. Uh, Hilary Sutcliffe came in the comments and was very interesting, just saying we have to distinguish between active trust, where someone's earned my trust, and I think they are really good, I'm going to trust them, and passive trust, where you just think, resignation, acceptance, oh well, I'll just let them get on with it, but I don't, don't have great, uh, great expectations. So we tend to use trust in a rather woolly way, and we need to be clear which kind of trust are we trying to rebuild, and, and do we really just want deference, again, where people just accept that people in Parliament or Westminster or wherever will run the country, or do we want something much more active in which we actually are excited and invest in our political representatives who, who are going to do good things? And then the last post of the week was a book review, a book I read while I was in the States and Bolivia recently, um, Civic Activism Unleashed by Richard Youngs. It's really nicely written, and its its starting point is that there is a new upsurge in global activism, not just in the North, but right across the world. Um, All that idea from Robert Putnam that people are isolated and bowling alone looks very dated, actually. People are very engaged in many new ways, and in different ways. It's much more unstructured and blobby. There's not, you know, leaders that asks are more hard to pin down. And so Richard Youngs is trying to dig into this. And he has some really interesting ideas in this book. One is that the demands of these new social movements, these new, this new form of activism, are often what he calls prefigurative. They're not about specific policies. They're trying to change attitudes and beliefs. It's what I would call social norms. So they're essentially normative. Um, but he's, but then the key question is, well, have they had any success? And he's got a, a wonderful quote from Slavos uh, Zizek, 
just saying, look, I'm sick of these one million person marches, which achieve absolutely nothing. You know, what are these? And, and I think, you know, he tries to establish whether they're having much success. And I think essentially fails, gives up. You know, it's very, very hard to, to pin down, you know, just because, uh, yeah, let's take Egypt, for example. You know, uh, then the high point of the Arab Spring was the overthrow of Mubarak by popular protest. But Egypt's gone backwards since then. So is that a success? Is ousting a dictator a success? Depends what comes afterwards, doesn't it? So I think some real questions there. And I had a couple of criticisms of the book. I mean, it was lovely. It was beautifully written. It had some great uh, observation of the state of this civic activism. But I thought what was missing was political economy analysis, the interaction with power. When people write about civic activism, they tend to get really, really excited about the activism. So they you know, talk a lot about the protests and, and the new and the, the, the apps and the platforms and the way people protest. But what you need to then do is say, okay, so how does all that interact with people who are in positions of formal power, who are making decisions, who have control over money or weapons or whatever? How do they see this activism? When does the activism align and make sense to those people in power? When is it completely unacceptable? When do they oppose it? Nowhere near enough of that in the book. So it's very much an activist eye view of the world, and that's only half of the, the piece for me. And the other point was just the other thing that people do, uh, I think, in, in, when they're writing about activism, but also more generally, get terribly excited about all the stuff they've researched. You know, how many movements in which countries, look, it's happened in this continent, this continent, this continent, this continent. And over a whole book, that can get quite wearying because actually I want some analysis. You know, why does all this matter? And, and there wasn't enough of that for me in the book. But it's a really clear picture of what is going on, I think, out there in, in, in other ways. And uh, I think Civic Activism Unleashed is a worthwhile read, nevertheless. So I'll say goodbye to that and have a good weekend. Bye.